talks we have today are on stem cells, so I know this has been a, a very uh, plaguing uh, biological issue. So Oops, this is the wrong one. I'm sorry. This is the non-copyrighted issue. I need to bring up a different version. That's the one. There we go. Okay. All right. Good afternoon. So I've been wondering, does cold qualify as a memory enhancer or a stimulator? Because, man, I'm, I'm stimulated. <laughs> okay. Uh, welcome. This afternoon I want to talk to you about some ethical dilemmas associated with stem cells, but not the dilemmas that we're dealing with currently, rather those that I'm pretty sure we'll face in the near future. First, though, I want to make an observation about human nature that I think is relevant to this presentation, which is that I think that we, as a species perhaps, are much better at fighting for causes than we are deliberating ethical issues. This could explain, for example, how a person who might feel so strongly about um, fighting against the destruction of human embryos that that person would protest in the street against embryo stem cell research, how such a person could conceivably go home, talk to a member of their family who's considering in vitro fertilization, and uncritically support that decision. Even though in vitro fertilization, as practiced in the US, currently accounts for the destruction of many more human embryos than does embryo stem cell research. Okay, because of this kind of disconnect, I'm concerned about the future of stem cell therapy in the times after the policies have been made. What will we, as folks who may have opposed embryonic destruction, what will we do when the options are there for us to potentially use this therapy? I basically only want to make two points. The first one is that I do think that embryo stem cell therapy will be available in the, in the not too distant future. And the second one is we're going to have some ethical dilemmas to deal with when that time comes. Okay, just a brief review. We're fairly familiar, I think, with the first two types of uh, stem cells up here. These are the three main types that I think currently are on the horizon as potentially viable options for stem cell research in the future. The first two, embryo stem cell um, embryonic stem cells and adult stem cells are the ones that we've heard the most about. In fact, over the past decade or so, this is about all you've heard of in the debates is should it be embryonic stem cells, should it be adult stem cells? One group says, no, it can only be embryonic stem cells. Another group says, no, adult stem cells can do everything embryonic stem cells can do. Let's drop the ethical problems, go with the adult stem cells. I'm afraid that the truth is probably that both of these types of stem cells will be used, adult stem cells for which there are no ethical dilemmas, but also embryonic stem cells. Then we have this third player, which is relatively recently on the scene, induced pluripotent stem cells. Now, just in case you haven't kept up, I'll give you a little review here. Induced pluripotent stem cells are cells that have been derived from adult human cells by a genetic modification so that they behave, at least on first uh, glance, 
almost exactly like embryonic stem cells. So these are the cells that have been hailed as the ethically neutral alternative to embryonic stem cells. Presumably, they can do just about everything embryonic stem cells can, but they don't require the destruction of embryos. I'll talk more about these kinds of cells in just a minute, but first what I want to do is contrast the embryonic and the adult stem cells because these are the pair that we've heard about so much as alternatives to one another. But as I just suggested, I don't think they really will be alternatives in that way in the future. And so I just want to demonstrate that some of the claims that we've heard that adult stem cells will be perfectly sufficient in the future are probably a little bit misguided. I just want to use one example. I could give you scads of examples, but I don't have time. But this one example is one that we've heard about quite a bit, where the assumption is, okay, we do have adult stem cell therapy for Parkinson's disease. Why do we need embryonic stem cell therapy? You may have heard of this individual, Dennis Turner. He is a gentleman who himself was treated with adult stem cell therapy to treat his Parkinson's disease. And the way that you may have heard about him is that in 2004, he testified before a Senate committee on stem cells, advocating for the use of adult stem cells. And his story is remarkable. He was treated with adult stem cells from his own brain. And after a short period of time, he showed almost complete remission. The physicians could hardly tell that he had he was exhibiting any symptoms of Parkinson's disease. Sadly, though, after just five years, uh, his condition returned back to the state that it previously had been in prior to the stem cell therapy. Okay, now that's a wonderful thing. I think that's great, and I do think we'll be seeing that kind of therapy in the future, but let's just compare it with embryonic stem cell therapy to see why I think that both types of therapies will probably be used. So in this case, the adult stem cells were derived from cells that were taken from his brain using a brain biopsy, not a fairly invasive kind of procedure, obviously. Contrast that with embryonic stem cells. The idea here is that these would be cells that would be available in an already expanded capacity, ready to use, presumably. So you wouldn't have to derive them from the patient. They would already be expanded. All you'd have to do would be differentiate them and insert them. The third point up here, these cells were autologous cells, meaning they had the same genes as the patient, so they expressed the same antigens as the patient. They were not subject to any kind of immune rejection, which is great. This is one of the main advantages of adult stem cells. On the other hand, they had the same genes as the patient, not just the same genes for antigens, but the same defective genes. We now know that there are a number of genes associated with Parkinson's disease, and so these cells had the same defective genes for Parkinson's disease as well, which may be the reason that they only provided a brief period of relief from the disease. We don't know. Again, we're not sure, but it could be that embryonic stem cells might provide a prolonged benefit for this kind of uh, disease treatment. So taking all of these together, there certainly will be people in the future if embryonic stem cell therapy is developed to the state that we think it will be, that'll want to take advantage of this kind of therapy. But what about the induced pluripotent stem cells? Okay, again, these are these relatively new stem cells on the scene. 
that we say, wow, what a great alternative to embryonic stem cells. They seem to be able to do everything embryonic stem cells can, but they don't require the destruction of embryos. There are some downsides, though. The first one noted here is simply a practical concern, but realize that practical concerns will probably, will probably drive people's desires for different kinds of technology. Producing induced, poly, induced pluripotent stem cells would require at least two extra steps as compared to using embryonic stem cells. They'd have to be derived from the patient, and then they'd have to be genetically manipulated to make them pluripotent. Secondly, again, induced pluripotent stem cells would have the same genes as the patient. So if the disease we're trying to treat is a genetic disease, well, we'd have to change the genes in the induced pluripotent stem cells as well. Immediately, we think genetic engineering. Genetic engineering can solve everything. But wait, genetic engineering hasn't solved everything yet. There are a myriad of genetic diseases for which we have no idea yet how to treat those diseases. So this may be a hope for using induced pluripotent stem cells, but not today or tomorrow. This is a long-range plan. And then the third concern here that I've listed is perhaps the most striking, and this is one that's just came to uh, the public awareness in the last couple of months. A study has just been released that suggests or, or that indicates that there is a difference in gene expression between these cells and embryonic stem cells, and also between adult, stems, or adult cells. Specifically, there are at least 10 cancer-associated genes that are active at about 10 times the normal expression level in most induced pluripotent stem cell lines, at least the ones that have been tested. So what does this mean about the future of using these cells? Does it mean we can't use them? We don't know at this point, but it certainly means we've got to be careful about how we proceed, and all the hype that we're hearing right now needs to be taken with a little bit of a grain of salt. Okay, moving on to the ethics, and here's where I want to spend most of my time. Um, as I think together with you about this, I want to reflect on the work of two authors who I've considered and who um, I have some responses to, Ronald Green and Mark Brown, who have both considered the question of, is it legitimate for those of us who might oppose destroying embryos to use embryonic stem cell therapy in the future? After we've looked a little bit at some of the work of these two authors, we'll consider some of these possible dilemmas that may occur in the future. So Ronald Green. Green poses his question in terms of can we benefit from an evil? He puts it in quotation marks because it's a perceived evil. It's the evil that some of us may, uh, an evil we may feel is evil, that is destroying embryonic stem cells. But can we benefit from that wrongful act if it encourages future wrongs is, is Green's essential question. Now, notice what Green is doing is he's approaching this question from a perspective that we might consider something like a consequentialist perspective or perhaps even a utilitarian question. He is not assuming absolute morality here. He's just looking at cause and effect. And he's saying, if this happens, what's the likelihood that this will happen down the road? So Green's assessment considers only whether accepting the benefits of embryonic stem cell therapy would either directly or indirectly encourage this uh, wrong action of destroying embryos 
later on at some period down the road. Now, I could tell you quite a bit about Green's thinking here, but really I only want to focus on two of his conclusions that are relevant for our consideration. The first one has to do with therapeutic cloning. Okay, remember, therapeutic cloning is just one specific type of embryo stem cell therapy, and um, this would involve myself as the patient, for example, um, allowing the doctors to take a nucleus from one of my adult cells, a skin cell, for example, inject it into an enucleated egg, and create an embryo specifically for the purpose of embryo stem cell therapy. This has been proposed for humans, hasn't been done yet in humans, but similar kinds of, re of experiments have been done in animals up to this point. Green arrives at what I consider to be an inescapable conclusion here. He says that if we oppose the destruction of embryos, it would be illicit for us to take advantage of therapeutic cloning. Okay, no argument here, but the reason he says this would not be a, uh, an acceptable alternative is that we are the ones who are directly encouraging the destruction of an embryo in this case. So in his equation, he sees that as morally illicit. His second conclusion is one that I don't agree with, though. He says that benefiting from other types of embryonic stem cell therapy, that is, besides therapeutic cloning, would not be illicit because at present time and for the foreseeable future, embryo destruction is entirely independent of human embryo stem cell research and therapy. What Green means here is that because there are so many surplus embryos available from in vitro fertilization, the fact that they're going to be destroyed for embryo stem cell research doesn't really matter. They're going to be destroyed anyway, so there's no direct connection. I agree with Green's equation, with his mathematical assumptions there, but I don't agree with his moral assessment. The reason I don't agree is because I think that we are already culpable for the destruction of those embryos in in vitro fertilization. And I think it's because we as a society have allowed for a system that enables people to take advantage of this process and generate surplus embryos that that's the reason they exist. So I don't think in good conscience we can go on our merry way and use those surplus embryos that we have done nothing to prevent being created. In fact, this is where I want to draw my first conclusion, and it's not really a future-looking conclusion, but rather I think it's a conclusion for an application that we can make right now. For those of us who feel that destroying embryos is wrong, I think we should advocate for changes in the regulations here and now that govern in vitro fertilization clinics. Or perhaps I should say we should advocate against the lack of regulations because there really are very few regulations regarding the generation of surplus embryos. Okay, but back to our scholars and their thinking. Mark Brown. Brown is a scholar who argues from a tradition that is much more comfortable for those of us in the room here. He does base his assessment on the concept that there is absolute right and absolute wrong. Uh, he reasons from the perspective of Roman Catholic moral theology, and he uses this concept of moral complicity. That is, if there is something that is absolutely morally wrong and I benefit from it, I am somehow complicit in that wrong action. 
I could tell you again a lot more about what Brown says about moral complicity, but I don't have enough time. So I'm going to read one passage for you and note that there are going to be three numbered points here. We're not going to focus on the first point, but we will follow up on points two and three. So Brown says, the burden of moral complicity depends upon the morally relevant features of one's participation in wrongdoing, the most significant of which are first the moral evaluation of the action of the primary agent. Primary agent, in this case, is the one who destroys the embryo to make the embryonic stem cells. Okay, what we're more concerned with, though, is the significance of number two, the state of mind of the cooperating agent. In this case, the cooperating agent is the person who benefits from the destruction of the embryos. So if I receive the stem cell therapy, I'm the cooperating agent. And third, the foreseeable consequences of that cooperation. From here, I want to tell you about three elaborations that Brown makes. And what I'm going to do is I'm just going to tick them off relatively quickly, and then we're going to unpack them in a couple of moral scenarios, a couple of uh, ethical scenarios. Okay, regarding intentions, the intentions of the cooperating agent here. Brown believes, and I would agree with him, that moral complicity exists for the one who benefits even if that person does not share the intentions or endorse the practices thought to be morally wrong. Okay, before I leave this point, let me just point out that this applies to the situation I was talking about a moment ago with in vitro fertilization. People go to a clinic because they want a baby. They don't want to destroy embryos. They want a baby. But, but Brown would contend that if they realize what's going on in that, inter, in, that in vitro clinic, they know embryos are going to be destroyed, there is some moral complicity there. Okay, this second point is one that you might find a little bit difficult to take at first. It sounds a little bit consequentialist. In some instances, Brown says, the good, that, the good sought morally outweighs the wrongness of the action done on its behalf. Okay, we'll unpack that a little bit more in just a minute. And then third, intentions can only be oriented towards future actions. What Brown has in mind here is that there may be a time somewhere in the future when the use of embryonic stem cell therapy is so distantly associated with the destruction of embryos that there might be something like a statute of limitations where we no longer would suffer this moral culpability for using embryonic stem cell therapy. Okay, let's unpack these a little bit. So in the future, and now I'm talking about, I believe, the near future, this idea of the intention of the cooperating agent comes into play. If embryonic stem cell therapy is possible in the near future, which I believe it will be, I think it'll also be supported by, it'll have to be supported by the destruction of more embryos. It won't just turn the corner immediately. There'll be a long phase, I think, where continued destruction of embryos will be necessary. And this, I think, could happen in the next 5, 10, 15 years. If this is the case and a direct connection exists between utilizing embryo stem cell therapy and the destruction of embryos, those of us who think it's wrong to destroy embryos absolutely can't simply justify walking into a clinic and getting embryonic stem cell therapy. However, there's some gray areas. What do we do with this statement of Brown's that sometimes the good sought outweighs the wrongness of the action? 
Well, does this go down well with you? Maybe you think, hmm, this sounds a little bit iffy to me. It sounds a little weaselly to me. But think about it. This is a principle that is utilized in medical practices consistently in our current day and age. Uh, it's, in that context, it's called medical paternalism. If there's a condition that a person is suffering that's so grave that information about his or her condition might cause the patient to relapse or not to um, be able to recover as quickly, it's, it's generally held to be perfectly fine for the doctor to withhold that information. He's deceiving. She's deceiving the patient. But we say, no, under that condition, the good achieved is better than the wrong action. How do we apply that to stem cells? Well, I think there's at least two things that we need to consider here. And obviously, this is much, much more complex than I have time for. But I think we certainly need to consider the magnitude of the good sought. So for example, let's say a person is offered the opportunity to use embryonic stem cells or adult stem cells. And there's two different situations here. In the one hand, the person is offered that option and told embryonic stem cells will save your life. Adult stem cells won't. Giving that person embryonic stem cell treatment under this condition, I think, would be a good of relatively large magnitude. On the other end of the spectrum, someone is told, well, it would be a lot cheaper for you to use embryonic stem cell therapy than adult stem cell therapy. That would be a good of relatively small magnitude compared to saving a life. So we need to consider the magnitude of the good. We also need to consider the relational networks of the person making the choice. So it might be considered heroic for me to abstain from undergoing embryonic stem cell therapy and choose to die, perhaps, if I was making that decision in a vacuum. But what if I am the sole caregiver of a mentally challenged, mentally handicapped young person? Then there's a relational connection that has to be considered because I'm not making the choice just for myself. Or what if I'm choosing to use or not to use embryonic stem cell therapy for a young child, my own child, who will die if that therapy is not administered? So again, the relational network. And then finally, what about this idea that intentions can only be oriented towards future actions? Will there ever come a day when embryonic stem cell therapy is so dissociated from destruction of embryos that it really doesn't matter anymore? Well, perhaps. But I don't think that day is in our near perspective. Rather, I think we're coming close to a time when we are going to be faced with an abundance of ethical dilemmas that many of us in this room may have to deliberate. That is, of course, unless we simply choose to accept the status quo. But I hope that that doesn't happen. Thank you.